This is Ken Forster, Executive Director of Momenta Partners and Momenta Ventures. Welcome to our Digital Leadership Podcast. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momenta, they are deep industry practitioners. We hope you find these podcasts informative, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day. This is Ken Forrester welcoming you to another edition of our Digital Leadership Podcast Series. Today, I'd like to welcome Ben Tao, who recently joined us as a strategy partner. For the past decade, Ben was Corporate Development Vice President at PTC, where he drove the industry-leading acquisition strategies, as well as digital transformation efforts, including areas such as industrial Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, and augmented reality. Prior to PTC, Ben spent six years as a senior management consultant with PRTM, advising both Fortune 500 and top PE firms, portfolio companies across a broad range of strategic and transformational initiatives. Ben started his career with pioneering work on Oracle's data warehousing engine in the late 90s. I've asked Ben really focus on four things today based on his own digital leadership journey. One, of course, as a practitioner in the digital industry. Two, as a technologist. Three, strategic acquire, uh, an area he's quite well known in. And of course, uh, four, as a digital industry strategist. So Ben, welcome to Momenta today. Well, Ken, thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure. All right. So. Tell me a bit about your professional journey and how it has informed your views of digital industry. Sure, Ken, I would be very happy to do that. Uh, I would say that for the past decade, I had the privilege of working really on the front line to help transform the company uh, called PTC. PTC is a Boston-based company. It was founded back in 1985. it was one of the top three global engineering software company I joined back in 2010, uh, primarily focusing on the PLM and the CAD sectors. Well, the company, I have to say, was quite successful at the time, but uh, I would also say that many analysts won't really view the company as being very transformative. And right now, say 10 years later, it's actually a very, very different company now. If you look at its part of portfolio, look at the company's culture, look even its branding here. It's really transforming itself quite successfully to really become a leader in the area of IoT, industrial IoT, AR, and even additive manufacturing. So PTC's transformation journey uh, is actually quite interesting. I would say it's perhaps going against conventional wisdom. Uh, a lot of digital transformation is about acquiring the digital assets. And PTC is actually, you know, to a certain degree, it's going the other way around. PTC, because it was born as a digital company, is a PLM and the CAD products are about digital modeling. Well, PTC actually deployed more than a billion dollars of capital, mainly through acquisition, to become more physical. Uh, when I say physical, I do not really mean, you know, buying physical assets like a factory or equipment, but rather acquiring the market-leading technologies that can talk to, can make sense of, and change, have an impact on the physical environment. Uh, By the way, those are precisely the kind of technologies is 30,000 industrial customers, John Deere, Agaco, 
Boeing, et cetera, really need to speed up their own digital transformation. And if I may talk a bit more about kind of my career before PTC, uh, before I joined PTC, I spent six years uh, with a Boston-based management consulting firm called PRTM. It's not as big as a kind of McKinsey or BCG. It had uh, 700 global consultants. But uh, I kind of like, really enjoy my time at uh, PRTM. It's really small enough. You can really get to know most of the partners. You can really work together. So we spent some time in aerospace, telecom, medical device, a lot of industrial companies. Actually, it's really funny when I came over to PTC, I just realized that these two companies' customer base are almost like a carbon copy to each other, especially when it comes to some of the largest Fortune 500 manufacturers. And the PRTM and the PTC, they kind of addressed the industry transformation uh, challenge from different angle. So PRTM kind of focused a bit more on the strategy and operation side, but PTC is all about cutting edge technology and the tools. Uh, during my PRTM time, I was really splitting my time two way. I spent perhaps the first three years focusing on the kind of industrial enterprise accounts, but I spent my last three years primarily working with the P portfolio companies. Um, however, you know, when I was working for PRTM, I actually did quite a bit of work in the area of uh, diligence, post deal transformation. At that time, I had this kind of a, I would call uh, unscratched itch because I rarely got a chance to really work for the software industry where I came from. Well, uh, if you can dial back the clock a bit more, software is really something I developed a passion for since I was uh, even a middle schooler. I could still remember that writing my first game on a tiny computer called a Sharp PC 1500 back in the 80s. It was actually a lot of fun. That actually got me in, into the uh, computer industry. That's you know something I feel really passionate about. So later on, I was educated as a computer science uh, graduate. I took my first job, uh, respectively, with the Microsoft and Oracle's database engine teams. And so when PDC was growing its crop dev function, I said, wow, that's amazing. It's a perfect opportunity for me to keep doing what I always enjoyed at a PRTM, but however, this time, it's really for the software industry. So I would say that kind of in retrospect, I think that my work at Oracle, PRTM, and the PTC, they kind of all converged to really deeply shape my perspectives into the transformation of digital industry. It's really something I feel like I now bring to Momenta partners. Um, I hope really to make a difference uh, here at Momenta for both its uh, advisory as well as uh, its uh, venture investment practices. Mm, and we're very happy to have you. We love people who, uh, one, have started as engineers. We call those truly practitioners. But to step from there to consulting and really to corp dev, where you're a bit the invisible guiding hand behind the industry movements, uh, is uh, is particularly compelling. So let, let's um, – oh, by the way, I, I had to laugh at your sharp PC 1500. I actually started on my, my uh, quote-unquote computer science career on a um, – 
a TRS-80 Model 100, if you remember the Radio Shack computer uh-huh. powered by four double A's. <laughs> so wow, there, we, date, we dated each other at this point now. So so let's 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 go, yeah, as you say, kind of winding the clock back and, and start back at your uh, technologist days, um, especially your early work with uh, uh, you know, data technologies particularly. Tell me a bit about that. Well, uh, that's uh, actually quite an interesting, you know, journey. How I kind of, uh, you know, found my career around not only technologies but also kind of data technologies. And I would think that perhaps, you know, really in the mid nineties, uh, when I was kind of almost being ready to wrap up my college in Beijing University, and uh, finally I was able to find my kind of first paying job. It was actually uh, writing a program for uh, insurance claim a program for a startup called uh, Pacific Insurance, was well, that startup over time became really successful. Right now, uh, they have grown to be the second largest property insurance company in China. Uh, they were quite small at the back in that time. So the program I wrote was based on Informix uh, database technologies. Uh, Informix was a major rival to Oracle at that time. And uh, what struck me as odd was that my kind of got their stuff to be working finally, the people there got so excited. They took me out for a very, very fancy meal. And uh, I was surrounded by three people kind of twice my age. And they are showing very genuine appreciation for the work. Well, by the way, which, you know, I just learned how to do the work like one semester ago, right? I feel like that experience really gave me my first taste how data could really have a very, very big impact on the traditional business. So that kind of cemented my decision to really focus on the database technologies in my graduate studies when I later on came over to the United States. Um, so I finished my um, master's degree. Um, so Oracle became a very natural choice. They're really the best in terms of a database technologies, especially in the area of uh, high performance data warehousing technologies, kind of a big data uh, like uh, two decades ago. So the group I joined, um, you know, they're already solving the kind of a big data problem at that time. And Oracle, Microsoft, they were really locked in the battle for the supremacy of the data warehousing performance. So as a young engineer, I was pretty happy. You know, I got thrown into that battle, a lot of challenge. Well, you know, if you think a bit more about what a database engine really is, it's uh, fairly easy to understand. They're a machine for answering questions, right? The trick for answering questions very quickly is to figure out beforehand what difficult questions users feel likely throw at your way, and therefore you can have answers ahead of time. And well, at that time, Oracle was not exactly a young company at all. They already got a decades of technology, decades of complexity of building to their super complex database kernel database engines. Now, the process of solving the problem I just mentioned elegantly, effectively, is actually very, very challenging here. Um, so it's kind of a really cut out for me as a young engineer fresh out of a graduate school. Well, I would say that it took quite a while to really crack open the nut. But actually, once you finally getting there, um, the feeling of getting something done was tremendous. Well, just think about it. Oracle has a huge install base. Now, all the retail chains, all the big airlines, all the financial service firms running complex reports, doing ad hoc queries, they could see results coming back immediately. They could save a lot of time. They could save a lot of money. 
So uh, I kind of stayed away from uh, hands-on technology work since my Oracle days, almost like uh, you know, 15 to 20 years ago. But however, um, if I lost some of the coding skills, I would say that two things did stay with me forever. Uh, I think that's quite interesting. The first thing is really you know, the curiosity for disruptive technologies. Um, they could really change the world. I see that, you know, I saw that kind of firsthand, right? I experienced that firsthand. I did a small part to make it happen. But second piece, even more importantly, is really the realization of the huge potential of data technologies. 20 years ago, where it's kind of hard to believe, data mining, machine learning, and AI were already very hot topics then, at least within Oracle's data warehousing group. So, and later on, as I kind of embarked on my business consulting career, and uh, kind of became a strategic acquirer and making sense of technologies and figuring out their strategic and financial implications really gave me a very strong edge in buying the right kind of uh, disruptive digital assets. Yeah, you know, if there's a red thread through all of that, Ben, it's it's what I would call systems thinking, right? Whether you're, uh, uh, if you will, coding or building up uh, complex systems or building up organizations that run complex systems or buying them, you tend to always think of it as multifaceted view of a system, right? And looking for those best practices that are in there. So no surprise you could make that jump from technologist to you know to consultant to uh, really strategic acquire. Let's let's go all the way to that latter one because it's one obviously I have a lot of passion about. So I was lucky enough to to meet you sitting across the table on more than one occasion um, at PTC, usually representing one of our uh, portfolio companies. But you've really been the invisible guiding hand behind some of what I would consider to be some of the most meaningful acquisitions in the digital industry space. ThingWorks, right, a company that we know well at Momenta Ventures, uh, Kepware, Vuforia, to name just a, a few of them. How did you find such winners consistently? Well, okay, well, thank you for the, you know, very, very kind of words. Um, well, there's a quite a big team, you know, working at PDC to making all the different deals uh, happen. And uh, so I would say it's really, you know, a team effort. Uh, I'm genuine about that. Um, so I have to say that I kind of learned quite a bit working on those deals. Uh, well, I mean, it's very easy to say, have a look at the final outcome, you know, PTC's market cap, grew tremendously through those acquisitions. So uh, it's kind of a, you guys got that figured out, right? Well, uh, well, I would say that perhaps for this particular audience here, you know, uh, before we start to look at the results, it's perhaps more helpful for you to reflect a bit on the journey of getting there. Um, so uh, many of the audience here perhaps already read many academic research, uh, analyst report. So this merger and acquisition business is not exactly that easy. 70% uh, or 80% or even higher percentage of deals, they simply you know, uh, fail to meet the sponsor's expectation. Well, but that uh, did not stop tens of thousands of deals from taking place every year. So the question is why? Well, the answer is actually fairly simple because merger and acquisition remains one of the most potent levers to drive change quickly and effectively. Well, I would say that in some cases, it's really the only way to make a decisive and a transformative change happen. 
So if you allow me here, Ken, I can really break down the journey to really two big steps. You know, I try to illustrate each steps. Uh, it's been more about practitioners' observations. I'll skip the theory because I think there are plenty of theories over there, right? So uh, I would say the first step is really about the merge acquisition investment thesis. The tasks here are really twofold. The first thing is really to get those investment objectives right. The second part is harder, really to get the merge acquisition thesis strategy across. Okay, what do you mean? What I mean by that, right? So why I say to get it right, uh, I feel like we need to really double click into uh, who is really doing the deal. Well, well, yeah, you can say that, you know, it's why, Ben, isn't that obvious? The parent company is paying for it, is doing the deal. Well, but is the growing part of the business taking ownership? Or is that a cash copy uh, part of the business? Uh, they'll be owning the future newly acquired business or simply it's really new business unit. You really need to bring a new GM to be owning the new acquired business. Uh, I feel like to really have that level of nuanced understanding very early on is very, very critical because depending on the situation, the different environment, different investment objectives can really take you down to very different paths. And for example, you know, I feel like you cannot afford to nickel on a dime a high-growth asset by choking its growth engine. Well, equally, you cannot afford not to nickel on a dime a financial consolidation deal to extract the margin. Well, the obvious, sorry, well, the above sounds kind of very, very trivial, but the real challenge lies in getting it across. Well, what I saw was that the ideas out of the hands of crop dev team and uh, business sponsors, they're kind of a, like a piece of fine art, right? It's clean, it's logical, it's elegant. But however, the moment the investment sees this idea, when they leave the executive office, when they reach the team members here, and uh, you cannot assume people will embrace ideas easily. You know, every deal, no matter the size, it's a pretty involved process in terms of time duration, the different group of people who got involved, whether internal or external, the deal dynamics across sourcing, diligence, and integration are simply so different. There are plenty of detractors along the way, you know, causing the deal to fail. You know, here are a few really very typical examples. Think about it, right? Say when people get pretty excited about shiny objects, say it could be a great demo, a very charismatic founder, a super big customer deal, they might ignore some of the critical fundamentals, fundamental flaws, right? And say for another example, you've got a, a lot of functional experts who really enjoy doing the diligence, who produced very, very deep reports, but sometimes they might simply miss the bigger pictures. Why are we doing the deal? Could you really tie your fundings, link them with the bigger objectives, right? So there are really plenty of opportunities for the deal not to be successful. So to recap, I would say that knowing the play is only 20% of the game, but doing the play is really 80%. So a responsible Cobb dev team here is not just about developing the thesis, but more about working with other stakeholders, patiently, resourcefully, to make sure the thesis can be realized. Now, also let me move on to the next bigger step, you know, in my kind of a two-step approach. The second step is really about finding the right targets. Well, at the risk of overly simplifying, to really get the best deal, you need to do two things. 
you need to be able to do smart work, and you need to be able to do that in a very disciplined manner. And so why I say smart work, the smartness, you know, based on my experience, rarely resides just within your Cobb Dev team. It's actually taking a village to find the best deals. I would say that the truly smart Cobb Dev team, they're more like the executive recruiters. They kind of network with their sales colleagues, service colleagues, industry analyst teams. So they go after whoever are touching customers directly. They find out who the stars are within those functions and really devote their time to build a relationship. And you know what? Those relationships would really bear, gonna bear great fruits. You're gonna turn them into your free, smart deal sources. Now, let me just cover the last piece why I say discipline work. It's really the idea of a screening, filtering, and running a stage-gated process, but it's just not a, like a kind of a ad hoc process. You should really run that as a machine. By that, I mean organizing your weekly meeting internally, organizing your quarterly cadence meeting at the executive level, even book up your management's calendars one year ahead, if not longer. And uh, finally, just don't be cheap on the tools. If you're going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on a deal, you're worried about improving the odds of being successful. And why don't you just buy the best data tools so you can get the market inside? Why don't you just invest in the best merge acquisition process management tools? Therefore, you don't go through the spreadsheet, you create a new level of efficiency. Well, Ken, you know, the answer is here is a bit long here, where the truth is that it's not actually easy and you have to be very, very disciplined. Mm, yes. You know, it's it's um, if you think of M&A organizations, what many times is missing is that critical eye element. You said sourcing, diligence, integration, right? The flow between those through. And I've seen in even large corporations where M&A and integration are completely two different teams, almost to the point that it feels like it's being thrown over the wall, which you know, creates all kinds of challenges. I loved your insight around uh, top performing corp dev teams being a lot like executive recruiters. Obviously, we have both our advisory and our exec uh, recruiting practice, and we have seen a lot of parallels in terms of how to find good deals um, and and really be able to early on assess those. So I think it's quite, quite astute uh, comparison there. You know, <clears throat> as Momentum Ventures, of course, we, you know, we've invested in over 40 companies and if I'm a, you know, a founder in one of these companies, I obviously would like to understand, you know, if there's some critical um, initial things you might look for in a company that maybe would want to sell themselves to the likes of a PTC, you know, although it wouldn't have to be just that example. You know, what do you look for? You know, what are the top couple things you're looking for in, uh, in, in, in a good uh, potential target company? Sure, you know, Ken, I would be happy to share a bit more about the mentality or perspectives about uh, strategy acquirer. Um, you know, I think my kind of a two cents for the startups really, um, companies are rarely sold. Um, of course, you can work with the investment bankers. Companies are really bought, especially for st strategy acquirers. So they would have a combination of strategic, financial, and business criteria and uh, whether they can to really activate any particular area really depend on the nature of the deals, depend on the fundamental business thesis. If you kind of walk your way backwards, uh, before you can really approach any um, strategic acquirer, 
you have to invest your time in understanding their business strategies, really understanding their gaps. And even then, before you're going to really reach out to them, the best way is for yourself to be discovered, right? Could you think about that you can, you know, generate some customer wins precisely on the path of the strategic acquirer and make sure you gain some attention of the industry analyst? That's typically, um, you know, a big source for deal source for the corp dev team here, right? I feel like that indirect third-party introduction is actually way more powerful than you just really reach out to corp dev team. I'm not saying that don't do that, but you don't want to make that your, you know, your primary choice. You also most want to make your direct approach as a secondary choice. You know, we uh, we call that uh, showing a little leg, <laughs> and it has it has worked uh, quite well in a lot of the exits of our companies where uh, you know we've we've coached them as well. You know, many who have seen you in this kind of strategic acquire role probably don't see the broader picture of what you've done both in PTC and at other companies. And by that, I mean, you know, digital industry strategists. So having worked in this digital industry now for, gosh, almost a decade, you know, how is it the same and different from digital transformation in other business domains? Okay, that's, I would say that, you know, uh, that's a very, very interesting question. It's something I've been really thinking a lot about. I've been reflecting upon all the deals uh, uh, I was doing when I was part of a PTC team here. I also attended really many uh, seminars. I know many of my colleagues have been asking the similar questions here. Again, I just want to really share my own two cents on this very interesting uh, topic here. Uh, regarding the commonality across the different digital transformation, across different industry verticals, I would say that the basic formula for digital transformation is actually quite universal. Well, you think about it. Uh, you're gonna need the data. The data may come from uh, business processes, it may come from people, it may come from uh, assets allowing people to do their job, right? Whether we're talking about physical assets like machine, equipment, sensor, or we're talking about digital assets like, you know, customer file, supplier data, et cetera. Such data really need to be curated, correlated, distilled into actionable assets. And then the assets would go back, sorry, then those actionable insights uh, would uh, go back to really modify the human behavior or physical assets behavior. And ultimately, you're hoping, you know, you're running business processes or physical processes at higher efficiencies and uh, is capable of generate more output, right? You kind of complete that loop. Well, the above all sounds very clean, very logical. But however, I would say that trying to do that in the industrial settings has some extra challenges. It's just not really that easy. Uh, I would uh, kind of group them into three buckets of challenges. The first bucket is really, you know, in the industrial market, it, it's really, really very, very fragmented. You know, for example, if you can think about the HR solutions, they can be configured relatively easily to meet the diverse verticals' needs. However, in contrast, what about if we are talking about a predictive maintenance solution? What's working for a stamping machine in an automobile plant have nothing to do with a mechanism, you know, which allow you to predict failure in a beer brewery. Let's just speak about the tremendous amount of fragmentation, right? Uh, I think the next set of challenges are really about the IT-OT divide. Again, you know, if we go back to HR solution, or even we can talk about CRM and ERP solutions, they all live on the same side of the IT fence. 
they don't really need to touch physical equipment for the most part. But however, to transform any industrial processes, you have to cross the IT OT divide. That divide is not just one dimension, no, it's just not about a technology like IT likes cloud, OT prefers air gapped on-premise deployment. Some of the deeper IT OT divide are really about the people, right? IT has a very strong, for example, team-oriented DevOps culture. And when you approach OT, you know, approach shop floor, you still run into many distributed jack of all trades, control engineers. And these two disciplines have a very different tolerance for downtime, reliability, and the human safety concerns. It's really something for, I think, any startup who want to really venture into this digital transformation business for the digital industry, they need to pay a lot of attention to that ITOT divide. And the third bucket, uh, you know, maybe the last bucket, I would say, is perhaps the last mile issue. Uh, the deployment of uh, the, you know, the digitally converged solutions still requires physical touch, whether it's about installing the sensors, uh, instrumenting the equipment, uh, tuning the gateway, or even fine-tuning your machine learning model, because you know certain training data set that simply cannot leave the factory floor for security or trade secret reasons. So I, I really see you know a lot of uh, differences uh, that came from uh, the above three areas, Ken. Hmm. So the domain knowledge, very, very critical in this. Um, the ITOT divide, yes, very, very different as they many times say a bug in IT and people are inconvenienced, a bug in OT and people are harmed or worse, right? And and I agree with you that the physical, the um, you know, all the way from air gap down to those just those physical devices. So I'll call it the atomic versus the digital, all very critical elements of why um, why really digital industry strategy or strategy is so different. So um, in, in, in closing out, you've seen a lot of interesting startups. Momenta has uh, obviously invested in a lot as well. From your perspective, where, what are the ones to watch in terms of startups or sectors at this point? Um, well, Ken, well, this is actually my favorite uh, topic here. Um, so over the past decade, I had the, you know, the pleasure and the, uh, the, uh, the luck of working with the many, many startup founders. I had a chance to speak with perhaps hundreds of uh, startup companies have my deep respect for their entrepreneurial spirit. So apparently I've been paying a lot of attention to what's really happening in the startup landscape. And uh, Why don't I just again, perhaps map into those companies to watch into the three buckets I just mentioned, if that's working with you. Um, I would say that if you can go back to the fragmentation problem, um, I really like the approach the UK-based company Sensei is taking. And so they work in the area uh, called predictive maintenance. Um, this is a pretty hot area. There are plenty of providers in the space. And many of the providers, they pursue the route of uh, being vertically integrated, meaning that they have their own uh, proprietary sensors. They have their own proprietary cloud algorithms to make sense of data coming from sensors like vibration, temperature, et cetera here. And then they are also going to really prescribe the actions. So the field engineers can really take action uh, to address the issue ahead of time. But however, I saw that Sensei was actually taking a very different approach. And they were saying that, you know, we're not really the expert to work on physical connectivity and the sensors. 
Uh, in many cases, some of customers already solved that problem for different reasons because you need sensor more than for predictive maintenance reasons, right? You know, you need that for operational reasons as well. So saying that, why don't I just focus on the things we do the best, building the strongest, most powerful, most flexible machine learning algorithms? That's precisely what they did. So because of that kind of choice, that kind of decision, they're able to somehow to uh, bypass the fragmentation issue here through really approach of uh, partnering with ecosystem partners, with each party really doing what they're really doing the best, right? And as a result, right now, they're really in you know, pretty sophisticated auto AEMs, many of their supply chain partners. Um, have a, I think that's a company is really worth watching out for. Uh, now let me move on to the next challenge regarding solving the ITOT divide. Again, we just talk about all the different dimensions. It's really, really difficult uh, to find a solution quickly. But uh, uh, I would really like to point to the two uh, businesses. Uh, one is the factorial businesses. Another one is really the Calypso. Um, both companies were acquired respectively by PTC and Rockwell. And both these two entities, they specialize in being service experts. They had a decades of ITOT convergence experience. They hire experts from both camps. Those people had worked together for quite a long while, solving the ITOT problem day in and day out. And to think about their impact to, uh, say, PDC and the Rockwell's business is actually quite significant because this group of people, they can provide both roadmap guidance to help R&D to fine tune the product. On the other hand, they can work on customer engagements directly to deliver value. Well, you know, in a sense, they're kind of provided the strategic buffer to give the disruptive products the time window to mature to cross ITOT divide. Um, although I think uh, they are now part of much bigger organizations, but I do see their impacts are just starting to show. The key is not about how much service business they could bring respectively to PDC and Rockwell but really how many strategic accounts they could help PDC and Rockwell to secure against competitions. So definitely uh, worth watching. And then finally, regarding the last mile issue, I really like the Boston-based startup called Rav2. Um, what they do is uh, AI-assisted remote diagnostics. Um, they can really connect your self-service customers with call center analysts, with service experts. The idea is to minimize truck rows. Um, this their solution really give a, uh, gives OEM a virtual way to deploy and service equipment. Again, I think that's a great company to check out. Uh, very good. Look, I appreciate and we would have to second your opinion of, of Sensei and Rev2 as they're both uh, companies that Momenta Ventures has invested in. For our listening audience, you'll know that we have six investment criteria, one, uh, I'll begin with them, but one that we call mission. And, you know, as I apply that towards Sensei, what appealed to, to us around the, that team there is that they came from Lynx helicopters. They actually were the team that did all the condition monitoring on the main helicopter rotor. And so you imagine a team that knows rotating equipment like no other. Same could be said for Dale Calder, the CEO over at Rev2, who uh, previously founded uh, um, Exceda <clears throat> and other industrial automation companies, by the way. So he's uh, he's certainly not new to the space or as a uh, serial entrepreneur. So 
all good suggestions there, uh, Ben. So final question we always like to ask is uh, any recommendations of books and or resources you'd like to share or maybe said another way, what inspires you? Right. Well, I think if there's like a one book, you know, I can really recommend it to this audience. Um, you know, the book which is actually highly relevant to today's discussion is a book called uh, Zone to Win. Um, it was authored by Jeffrey Moore and back in, uh, published back in 2015 here. Uh, Jeffrey Moore is the same author uh, who wrote the defining book on, you know, called Crossing the Chasm. Uh, well, so Zone to Win was really based on his field work at uh, Microsoft and uh, Salesforce.com. The key idea is that your business is not uh, really monolithic, but it can be separated into multiple zones. Different zones, they have very different growth and margin profiles. Therefore, they need to be treated also very differently. For example, you may have a one zone for incubating new ideas, losing a lot of money, but driving a lot of growth future potential. Uh, you may have a performance zone for balanced growth and margin, and you may have a productivity zone for highly profitable solutions, but they're likely to retire soon. And finally, and most importantly, you can have only one zone for truly transformative work. That's really the area you want to support it with all your financial strategic customer resources and gather everybody's attention to make it successful because transformative work is actually so hard. You need the undivided attention from everybody, right? Um, so fundamentally, you really have to adapt your strategy, organization principles, including your culture to fit into the unique attributes for each zone. The book apparently is very applicable to any acquirer uh, with some, with more than a single part of family, with some kind of corporate history. However, I would say that it's equally educational for companies looking to be acquired. So for those, the book really helps you to uncover the inner motivations of the strategic acquirers. So again, it's a very nice book uh, that inspired a lot of people uh, from PDC, uh, myself uh, included. Um, and, and then finally, regarding some online resource, I, I would really recommend Better Ventures website. They did an excellent job of covering the ins and outs for the SaaS deal landscape. So Zone to Win and Battery Ventures website, great suggestions in that. So it has been my great pleasure to uh, to introduce our newest strategy partner, Ben Tao, um, practitioner, technologist, strategic acquirer, and digital industry strategist. Ben, this has been a really insightful conversation. Uh, any final words from your perspective? Well, thank you, Ken. It has been a lot of fun doing this. Um, I guess for the audience uh, of this podcast, well, thank you for your time. For any questions, you can reach me through Momentum website or my LinkedIn page. Uh, I know it's not easy, but I look forward to learning about your challenge and your success in your very own digital transformation journey. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ben. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Leadership Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the discussions. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of prior podcasts, webinars, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening.